Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Hello, friend. Matt Harris and Seton Tucker here. So grateful that you're spending some time with us. And you can go to Murdoch Podcast on Facebook to reach out to us. Or you can, of course, go to the MurdochPodcast.com site. Or even if you want to directly email me, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com, we have a lawsuit to talk about. Yes, there was a lawsuit filed by Nautilus Insurance Company, which is the company that Alec Murdoch had an umbrella policy at the time of Gloria Satterfield's death. And this lawsuit was filed against Alec Murdoch, also against Corey Fleming and Chad Westendorf. And some interesting things are alleged in this lawsuit. Uh, First of all, in the lawsuit, it says that Gloria Satterfield told hospital workers She didn't know how she fell, which was interesting because Alec allegedly says that Gloria Satterfield had this moment of clarity when he arrived. By the way, he beat the EMTs there. Yes, that was crazy, the fact that he arrived at the scene. And this is new information that we find out from this lawsuit. So he gets there before the EMTs or the EMS, and he says that Gloria Satterfield regained consciousness And, quote, during which time she stated that Murdoch's dogs had caused her to fall. Now, the statement was heard by no one else, and it is contradicted by what the hospital staff said. But uh, immediately, Alex, like, she said the dogs, then went around town saying, hey, everybody, it was the dogs. And also in this lawsuit, we find out that after Satterfield died, Murdoch began to claim that Satterfield was at his property that day not to perform work for Murdoch and his family, but to collect a check for work performed for someone else, which gives you the, the workman comp thing is out of there. And so we also will be talking to a workman's comp attorney a little later in this episode. Also in the lawsuit I mentioned, and I don't think anybody should be surprised about this, but the lawsuit alleges that Alec was abusive toward the Nautilus adjuster handling the claim. And that falls in line with some of the bossy demeanor he had at the hospital the night of the Mallory Beach boating accident. So we begin this episode to uh, clear up this legalese that the insurance company is bringing with our legal analyst and a former defense attorney and a former DA, John Snyder. Hello, John. Hello. Have you ever seen anything like the quote in this lawsuit that says, the scope of Murdoch's depravity is without precedent in Western jurisprudence? That seems pretty hardcore to me it is hardcore and and i would agree that if the facts as they're presented in this complaint bear out to be true it is unprecedented in what levels alec went to to force a settlement engage in in behavior that is not becoming and Mm -hmm. basically basically litigate a case against himself so that there would be a massive payout that he would ultimately collect. It is, it is certainly not a run of the mill case and not something um, that, that you, you would see before. There's, there's some, there's some things that you've seen before where insurance companies pay out (laughs) as part of their insurance policy. Mm -hmm. 
they have a right to recoup uh, what they paid out uh, against the insured. And so that's fairly normal, not super common, but common. But never have I seen a case where you have this kind of language being used or uh, these kind of allegations against a member of the bar. So my first question for you is, we know that there were two settlements. There was a settlement against Alex's homeowner's insurance policy for this case, but that this lawsuit has been brought about by the umbrella company who Alex had insurance with at the time of the accident. So why would an umbrella policy be applicable? Okay, so lots of people and maybe more people have umbrella policies than they than they really realize, but but you have to have an insurance policy to cover your home to to cover any potential losses that would happen and and that policy will pay off your mortgage uh potentially pay to rebuild your your house and pay for the things that are in there but there are, there are limits on that policy that are maybe up to 100,000 for certain types of injuries Let's say you get a trampoline and the neighbor's kid gets hurt on that. You know, there might be a cap in your policy of what what the coverage is. So insurance agents and and very smart people have umbrella policies. And so umbrella policies cover claims made against an individual for all kinds of things that aren't covered by a standard homeowner's policy. And so it could be your automobile insurance, you have $100,000 injury coverage, but you you add umbrella coverage in case you get hit by somebody who doesn't have insurance and, and it's more than your uninsured cap. So umbrella policy is just an additional policy that people get. And it's pretty uh, very common to have an umbrella policy that covers anything that's not mentioned specifically in the homeowner's policy would be covered by the umbrella policy. Okay. So the pressure uh, was on, according to the complaint, Alec was pressuring the Nautilus investigators to to settle this clean. He said, if you don't, uh, I'm going to have a lawsuit for bad faith against you. You better pay the policy limits. And there seemed to be a lot of bullying going on by Alec, according to the lawsuit. How would this affect the defense if we find out that there was this pressure being applied? Well, we talked a little bit about before where, you know, Alec out there telling everybody in the world that he's responsible undermines, <laughs> undermines his case. And here in this context, you know, what we're talking about right now is Alec is the defendant Instead of saying you shouldn't pay out any more than what the homeowner policy is, Alec is demanding that the umbrella policy limits be reached and that that they pay out the full amount of the umbrella policy. Typically, someone that's being sued would like to pay as little as possible, knowing that they may be turned around and be have a claim brought against them for whatever got paid out by the insurance company. And I would guess in most cases, they don't even get involved. They just say, you guys just figure out what I owe or whatever. Well, you think you pay out the limit of your umbrella policy. You're thinking what might happen to my rates. Typically, we're saying uh, the, the standard person that's insured is saying, hey, you know, I want to make sure that everybody gets 
made whole, but I also want to make sure that I can be insured next year. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> that I can yeah, get a true. Renewal or that there's a hundred things that that would be a concern that you would want to have covered. And so you don't you don't want to demand that insurance company bleed itself dry paying out claims. But in this case, you did, which is why it's so noteworthy. And the and again, the Nautilus's attorney saying, hey, we do this stuff every day. We've never seen anything like this before. Well, we also need to talk about if this did go to court, it's in Hampton County, which has been described as a judicial hellhole. So should the insurance defense team take this into consideration? I mean, we have a lot more information than his defense counsel had at the time. I'm sure it was communicated to him to say, them to say, hey, I'm one of the most famous people that live in this county where this lawsuit's going to get brought. They are famous for giving, you know, really high jury awards and I'm famous for getting them. And so it might be in your best interest to solve this case for policy limits because it's you potentially could get a verdict for $20 million. Yeah, it could be something like that where he's saying, I know this place so well, you ought to just pay policy limits and settle. Well, I do want to mention that the accident occurred in Colleton County, but Gloria resided in Hampton County. So that would be one reason that the venue could be changed to Hampton. Correct. But either one's going to be, they're going to know who Alec Murdoch is. Sure. The whole idea where he was saying that Gloria said the dogs knocked knocked her over, and apparently he was walking around town saying, oh, this dog's knocked her over. Why is it vital that that narrative was told? You know, if you're trying to establish liability on yourself, you're going to tell people, oh, you know, Trixie loved to jump up on people. And we've had a number of other people that were younger that got knocked down by little Trixie. And and so when Trixie jumped up on Miss Gloria, we knew that could have happened and might happen. And, and we didn't do anything about it. And we, I just feel awful because we should have prevented that from happening. And that's that's probably what he's saying. And and again, that establishes knowledge. It establishes all the things you need in a negligence case, which are, you know, duty, breach, causation, damages. So he had a duty to make sure his dog didn't jump on people. He wants sued. He is pushing. He wants to be the at the, the mercy of the lawsuit. He wants to be sued. That, that's right. It's like he's he knows what. So it's it's very interesting. As a plaintiff's lawyer, he knows exactly what has to be proven in a court of law to get a judgment. And he is out there filling in the blanks for the the elements of the of the tort to be proven right off the bat. So when his buddy Corey Fleming takes over representing the Satterfields and does the lawsuit, there's been a nice path to victory. Yeah, I'll say, look, this guy's already said he did it. This guy's already said it was, he knew the Mm -hmm. dog was a good plaintiff's lawyer is going to say, Hey, uh, insurance company, you, you may be denying coverage, but I've got the guy, the guy whose insurance policy it is saying he's at fault. And and he's told everybody that he can, that it's his fault. We've got a couple of listener questions, which I thought were really good. You want to read the first one? If the feds get a conviction on Alec and Chad Westendorf and Corey Fleming, could 
the feds go after or the insurance company go after Satterfield's uh, boys money they won through the lawsuit? I would say no, because the money that the Satterfields received was minimal in the actual wrongful death lawsuit. The bulk of the money that they received came through attorney Bland's lawsuit for the fraud and for the all the, all the allegations of misdeed. Okay, that makes sense now. So that money that would be out there, I don't think they would ever have any knowledge of, of the fraud or any of the allegations. The big money that they received through settlement was the money that the attorney Bland very successfully obtained for them based on the misconduct of Alec, Corey, and and others. So if the insurance so, companies want their money back, they're going to have to get it from Alec. They're going to have to get their money back from Alec. The Satterfields didn't do anything wrong, you know, and, and part of why Alec was able to get away with it so long was, was based on their trust of these people in their lives. And so when Bland, I think Bland mentions this on, on the podcast that Seton recommended that, that I listened to. And, you know, Bland's like, Hey, these guys came over and started talking to me. And I was like, wait, wait a second. That's not how that works. And that's not how that works. Let's, let's look into this. And, and he said, he wrote a letter to Fleming to say, Hey, if I understand the following, you need to explain some stuff. And then, and then when he didn't hear back, that's when he brought a lawsuit. Okay, so we have one last listener question. Um, what happens when a witness is no longer able to testify because they're deceased? So we know the witnesses are potentially Maggie, Fun Paul, and Gloria, and they're all dead. How does that affect prosecution? Unless they gave a deposition under oath, unless they, there's recorded testimony of theirs, the exceptions to the hearsay rule would prevent them from anything about them being admitted. So if Alec admitted to his wife, his misdeeds, that would be excluded for two, two reasons. One, that she's deceased. So she's on the witness is unavailable. And two, you have spousal privilege. So that that's not going to come in. So the, the state and the feds will have to prove their case through other instead of testimony through circumstantial or direct evidence. All right. Anything else, Seton? I think that's it. it. John Snyder, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories. You participate in dialogues. So you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership 
for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. That brings us to our guest, Marty Miles Bluestein, graduated from Furman University, and she received her Juris Doctor degree from the University of South Carolina School of Law in 93. Marty currently serves on the Board of Governors of the South Carolina Bar and on the Executive Board of Homeless No More. She has previously served as President of the Injured Workers Advocates. Marty was named the American Board of Trial Advocates South Carolina Chapter Young Lawyer of the Year. Marty has also been recognized annually by Best Lawyers in America for a practice of workers' compensation law since 2013. It was named Lawyer of the Year in Columbia in 2013-16 and 2020. We are pleased to bring in Marty Bluestein. So we kind of wanted to start with the basics. Do workers' compensation laws vary from state to state? They do. So as I tell my clients regularly, if you have a friend in New York, Georgia, Florida, um, that's great, but we have to focus on what the law is here in South Carolina. So we are patterned after North Carolina, though we're not exactly like North Carolina, but yes, they do vary state by state. So another question that has come up is how many employees do you have to have before you're required to carry workers' comp insurance? So in South Carolina, what you're looking for for are four or more employees. And so you would need to look at the business. And I'm putting, you you guys can't see me. I did that almost air quotes of how many employees that he had. Oftentimes, we don't see household employees covered. You know, I've had people come to me in the past who maybe had a nanny or even like with older people, maybe a caretaker coming to the house to take care of maybe a mother, father, that sort of thing. And usually we don't have four more employees. So so the answer is four more employees. And there are some exemptions to businesses that have to be covered, but I mean that he doesn't meet any of those or his household or whatever kind of business we want to look at as him running his household doesn't meet the exemption. So if he had four more employees, then the argument is he should have had coverage. Well, that's a, a question that we don't have the answer to. We know that there was a caretaker working for them, but we don't know if they had four or more. So we don't, we don't have the answer to that question. But it does seem like by reading the complaint, you might feel the same way that they are implying that Alec was going out of his way to make sure this wasn't a workman's comp claim. Did you get that sense that they were if you straight up saying it or implying it? It didn't look like to me that they were straight up saying it, maybe implying it having no working knowledge of how many people were employed at their house, you know, I was kind of scratching my head a little bit because like I said, traditionally we don't see households that are employing four more people. So we just, it's not something that we go, Oh gosh, they really should have had workers compensation insurance. But what I will tell you is um, just because you're not required by law to have workers compensation coverage doesn't mean that you can't go out and purchase it. I mean, I know, individuals who they have, you know, a nanny that's with their kids. And I know individuals who've gone ahead and said, hey, we're going to go out and purchase that workers' compensation insurance coverage. Um, When I started my law firm 21 years ago, um, we didn't have to have coverage either, but we went ahead and opted in. If you go and purchase that insurance, you can say voluntarily, hey, I don't have to have it, but I'm going to go ahead and purchase it. I think your next question would be, well, why would I do that? 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Why would I voluntarily go and do that? The reason you would do that is because workers' compensation law is sort of tort reform before there was tort reform. What you're doing is purchasing this insurance, and if you have it, then your employees are limited to the recovery under that workers' compensation system, and you have limited recovery. The trade-off when the workers' compensation laws were enacted was, we're going to make you cover these employees on the one hand, doesn't matter who's at fault, but we're going to put some limits on it. The maximum you're going to get is 500 weeks of pay, and that's for someone who's totally disabled or unfortunately if there's a death. There are some exemptions too for lifetime benefits for paraplegics, quadriplegics, or physical brain injuries. But all in all, a much more limited system than if you have some catastrophic injury where you're, you're going after lost wages and for the entire lifetime and all the things that you see in what we think of as traditional litigation. The other thing with workers' comp is it it covers medical bills that limited disability recovery and then some weekly pay. Well, because she died, I mean, I don't, I don't know how quickly she died, but you're really looking at 500 weeks of pay as opposed to sort of this larger recovery. So that's why some people voluntarily go and purchase that, that coverage. But again, that's, I've, I see that as unusual, not typical. It's usually lawyers who do that, by the way. <laughs> well, they are personal injury up. lawyers. <laughs> They're so. smart, right? Well, so how is the average weekly wage determined? So what our statute tells us to do is to look at the 52 weeks prior to the injury. And you really look at the four quarters before, and so not the quarter that the person was injured. There are some again, as we love with the law, there's always like, well, but for, for exceptional circumstances, you can you can change that. But you look at the year prior and you look at what the what the employee average per week, and then that's called the average weekly wage. And then with workers' compensation cases, what we're always concerned about is what we call the compensation rate. Because if you if an injured worker gets hurt, they draw what we call um, a temporary total disability check, and and that's at the rate of the comp- compensation rate, which is two thirds of your average weekly wages. And the in the case of a death claim, you use that compensation rate times that five hundred weeks to come up with the value of that injured worker's um, well, the benef- the beneficiaries, what their uh, their dependents, what they would recover. To be clear, if he files under workman's comp. You can't do workman's comp and umbrella or personal liability or anything else. It's just one thing, right? Yeah. So, and that's a an interesting question. Um, yes, you're limited. As I explained to you earlier, the reason that people go who and sometimes voluntarily opt in is because it does limit your recovery. You can't sue your employer twice if they are if they have workers' compensation coverage. Um, then you have to pursue that claim and not tort. The interesting thing is, and the, and the one sort of caveat to that is, if there is this, you know, intentional act, if you have sort of the the corporate alter ego that has, you know, this intentional act, then you actually can choose to sue the person in tort, but you can't do both. Does that make sense? And and that's the one, that's a one little kind of weird, again, exception to the rule. So I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Like what would be an example of something an employer would do that would cause you to have this option? 
Oh, uh, an assault. So say that you're a manager and you assume the you, basically the entities, um, you're the alter ego. So if you have someone in management who it has this intentional act and intentionally assault someone, then you get to choose, hey, do I want to go after them in workers' comp or, hey, do I want to go after them in tort? Um, but that is the that is the one exception. But it can't be a coworker. It can't be someone who's at your same level. I mean, you can have people, you know, that you have a coworker that comes after you on the job. You, you, you're limited to tort. But if you have someone who's in that management um, then you can choose whether or not you want to sue them in tort or under the workers' comp system. Let's say you have some sort of medical event like a stroke or heart attack. How would that affect workers' comp coverage? Workers' comp um, treats strokes and heart attacks, those sorts of events, a little differently than, you know, than if you fall down and break an arm. So what you're looking for in order for that to be something that has to be paid is it has to be something that's induced by an unexpected strain or overexertion in the performance of the work duties, or if there's like this unusual and extraordinary condition of employment. And let's talk about like the unusual and extraordinary, like, well, was she doing something unusual or extraordinary that day? You would look at what her regular duties were. Like, was she normally lifting, you know, 50 pounds of something? Well, if she was normally doing that, then that then you wouldn't get to something extraordinary, unusual. We see cases in the past where like sometimes you had someone who was really much doing a desk job and then all of a sudden they said, hey, you've got to go out and help dig that ditch today and they have a heart attack, well, that would be something that would be unusual or extraordinary. There's a different sort of standard for heart attacks and and strokes, which you can imagine, because again, it's not like, oh, hey, that person fell off the ladder, which those are are the easy ones to kind of make sense of. Nautilus is saying that Alec was really pushing for this narrative that his dogs caused the fall, and she was at his property to pick up a check for someone else, so he wasn't working. So the one advantage that we've learned from you so far of having it fall under the umbrella policy is that's going to be more money uh, possibly given by the insurance company. How about how the money is distributed and the paperwork and all that on workman's comp versus some sort of payout through uh, umbrella or liability insurance? Yeah. So with workers' compensation cases, the way that that happens is the insurance company does what we call a dependency investigation, and they go and interview family members. They get death certificates, you know, they get all the things that are sort of pertinent to the case. And they hire there are companies that really do this, where they have investigators who who then produce a report and say okay, this minor child lived with them and and those sorts of things. And there are people under the law who are presumed to be dependents, you know, like spouses and then minor children. And then, you know, look, you can have other people that you support. You know, if if you're in a family situation where you're working and you're paying your mother's rent, you know, every month or something, I mean, there can be some arguments like that. But with the workers' compensation system, it's a little unique in the fact that they do these dependency investigations and then do the uh, publications in the newspapers and that sort of thing to say, hey, there's this claim out there. If you think you might be entitled, they do that. But also through these investigations that are done by these these companies, these private investigators, they kind of dig around and, and call the people that they 
feel like are pretty relevant to the or maybe interested parties. And then those insurance companies for the workers' compensation insurance companies then proceed to a hearing to make sure that the money is divided the proper way because they don't want someone coming back later going, hey, 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 what about me? You paid out this money and I didn't. you didn't even let me know anything was going on. So that that is a unique thing about the workers' compensation system here in South Carolina. Not only is it less money if it's workman's comp, but there's a big investigation and there is uh, a real track record of who got which amount of money. There's not like in a, the other policy, it seems like you have people who are appointed to pay out the money. In the workman's comp, it seems like you say there's this you know committee or whatever, and they say, all right, you get this check, you get this check, you get this check. So there's no room for finagling. Yeah. And let's say in a typical death claim, let's say it was an kind of a straightforward one where, you know, someone was working on ladder, they fell off the ladder, they die in the course and scope of em- employment. Everyone knows that the 500 weeks is going to be paid out. You still do that investigation, still get that report, still go in front of a workers compensation commissioner for that commissioner, then say, okay. And usually nine times out of 10, you know exactly how it's going to be divided up before you go in there, but you don't do still have it. And there are, of course, times where you have a dispute between family members, you know, as to whether or not someone was dependent or not, or or outside parties, ex-wives sometimes. <laughs> it's interesting how, how that all works. But yes, yeah, so that's with the workers' compensation system. You do have those, I guess, maybe extra layers in there. And the insurance companies, again, they're really doing it because they want to make sure that they've paid the proper proper parties. One of the things in the complaint says that Ellick claimed that Gloria was at his home on the day of the accident to pick up a check for someone else. So how would this affect a worker's comp claim, being that she wasn't there for work? Again, from what's been told, if she was truly there for something not work-related, I would argue she wasn't in the course and scope. I mean, if she truly went there to get, you know, a check for someone else, she's not in the course and scope of her employment. She just happened to be there picking something up. And let me go back. I I should have said this about the heart attack or the stroke when I was talking about how, if that did happen, how you would tie it to work. You know, there are people who have heart attacks and strokes on the job and they just happen to be at the job. It's not the job caused it. So that would be the real question if we, we went if I circled back to that, um, could have been there that she was doing something not work-related and just happened to have a heart attack or a stroke while there. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't think any of us know, right? No, we don't have we don't have the <laughs> yeah. answers to that yet. <laughs> not yet. But her death investigation is still open, so hopefully we will get answers to this. It's been great. Thank you for breaking this all down for us. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. I appreciate you guys reaching out to me, and, and uh, if you ever ever have workers' compensation questions. That's that's my that's my thing. Don't don't call me about the litigation part. Yep. <laughs> we got you. This is really it's great. Been thank very you. informative. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. That wraps up the episode almost. What would you like to add, Seaton? Yes. If we have missed something, it is May member. Busiest time for moms. Please reach back out to us on our Facebook page, which is Murdoch Podcast, mm-hmm. or on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. And we will talk soon. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. 
On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? <coughs> or just a horrible accident? <coughs> That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 